this conference, what is um, remarkable about it is that it almost didn't happen. Uh, well, everything's provisional, right? So everything probably doesn't need to happen. Uh, but uh, it almost didn't happen for a very specific reason. Jacob and I were going to be elsewhere this, uh, this evening, actually. And it was an enormous sacrifice for us to uh, sit on that and actually be here. Uh, Lino, can you, can you uh, post that picture? Tonight at 10.30 in California, there's something called Coachella going on. And Guns N' Roses is reuniting. And when it was initially announced, they've just played some shows in Las Vegas, and they also played a show at the Troubadour in Los Angeles. And, um, but originally it was going to be the reunion. After 23 years, Axel and Slash would be on the same stage, and it was going to be April uh, the uh, 16th. And so Jake and I thought, should we, should we just ditch it? Should we just go? You know, God is good. We'll see what happens. Um, we decided to stay here because to us, uh, Guns N' Roses is not just a way of life. It is a euphemism for law and gospel. What is the gun but a use of, you know, policemen, a force? Uh, what is a rose except for an expression of love? Um, being a little ironic. But it got me thinking as I was thinking about what I wanted to say to you tonight. Uh, and please, Lino, please leave that up there. Is what is it about Guns N' Roses that has stuck with me, that has lowered, that, that hits me underneath my defenses? And I mean, it, I couldn't miss this opening to talk to you about Axl Rose, okay? Um, so you're captive and you're going to hear about it for a little bit. Axl Rose, as some of you know, grew up in Lafayette, Indiana. He was the adopted son of a Pentecostal preacher who inflicted upon him a form of Christianity that is the very opposite of relief. It is the form of Christianity that many of us are all too familiar with, that uh, was um, majored in behavioral control and church attendance, uh, it's, it seemed to be, at least what was communicated to this young man was that uh, church was a vehicle for keeping the lid on human sin, but not just human sin, but humanity, period, so tightly that it caused splits in the lives of its, of its followers, of its adherents. He, um, he once described it in the following, you know, exaggerated terms. This is Axel Rose, after all. He said, my particular church was filled with self-righteous hypocrites who were child abusers and child molesters. There were people, they were, these were people who'd been damaged in their own childhoods and in their lives. There were people who were finding God but still living with their damage and inflicting it upon their children. I had to go to church anywhere from three to eight times a week. I even taught Bible school while I was being beaten and my sister was being molested. We'd have televisions one week, then my stepdad would throw them out because they were satanic. I wasn't allowed to listen to music. Women were evil. Everything was evil. Now, even if we're allowing Axel Rose some room here for overstatement, it's not a stretch to describe him as the product, at least in the, when he gave this quote, of a kind of 
Christianity, which is the opposite of relief, which is not religion as relief, which would be the title of this talk. It's religion as burden, religion as judgment, religion as worse, rationalization, self-justification. Um, it's kind of an American pietism with which we're all familiar uh, and it's marked by this sort of God helps those who help themselves theology. And it's practiced in some areas to the point of cruelty. Uh, you and I know it more popularly as sort of moralistic therapeutic deism where uh, God is sort of uh, waiting for you to take action and to, uh, it, it, the whole purpose of religion is to uh, change the way you act, but really so that you would feel good, feel better. He's, it, this wasn't so much concerned with happiness as simply uh, obedience. And the distance that young Axel had to travel to escape, both geographically and lifestyle-wise, probably correlates pretty closely to the toxicity of those circumstances. You know, this upbringing is not uncommon, as we all know. What Axel Rose found is he got to L.A. and he found some people that accepted him. And these were his brothers in Guns N' Roses. And they made an album called Appetite for Destruction. And there were no songwriting credits on it. They all lived in a room together and wrote this thing. It was a collaboration. There wasn't much ego involved originally. Now, um, what happened to those guys? They did experience, he experienced some relief momentarily from uh, religion as burden. Uh, but the album was so successful. It is the best-selling debut album of all time. It remains that way. So much so that people forget about Use Your Illusion. Those records are great too. Like really good. Listen to them again. Every song's got like a three minute intro and it's all good. Um, Appetite for Destruction did what it, what it revealed what um, is true about all of us is that we cannot opt out of religion. Religion broadly defined. Last night we were being interviewed by some uh, people about the Episco Disco. I guess it's 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 an unusual occurrence, the Episco Disco. <laughs> and these were people coming to it from a from a, from a very um, non-religious point of view, at least in their own minds. And they're asking us like, "Can you be you know spiritual but not religious?" And did anyone notice that Ted Peters' slide of Adolf Hitler, the the, the bottom? caption was spiritual but not religious. That was gold. Um, where am I? Uh, what happened with that, it was so successful, it was such a high watermark that um, it became a gold standard. They, they, they fulfilled the law to, to use, you know, they actually fulfilled the law. Those, you can't go to a sporting event today without hearing the opening riff to Welcome to the Jungle 50 times. These are written into our subconscious now. Um, and they, it's the fulfillment of all musical righteousness. <clears throat> but this, once it was out there, once you succeed on that level, it becomes, it, it, it is the law. And it comes to overshadow everything else you do in the future. It's like Michael, Mike, Michael Spitz um, winning all those medals and being so unhappy from that point in his life uh, onward. Um, its success uh, 
immediately reintroduced a new form of religion, which was simply performance. It's another religion of law. He adopted, I have to live up to this. It's what Michael Jackson had to do with Thriller. It's what anyone who's had an enormously successful, you know, career earlier in their life, uh, it's what happens to them. You experience relief for a little bit, but then you can't opt out of religion. And so what you're looking to for relief turns into a new vehicle of burden. And in this case, but while they were trying to record this second album, Use Your Illusion, you know what happened. I mean, it became bitter acrimony. The songwriting credits are so precise as to be absurd. And um, uh, before long, it, it was you could hear the splitting where there was cohesion. All of a sudden, there were 15 different bands on these records. It might as well have been 15 different people. Um, so Appetite was born out of freedom, but its success reintroduced the albatross of judgment. Uh, and it, in fact, the content of Use Your Illusion uh, was so bound up with a response to success as not being a good thing. Derek Webb was taught, we, we did a podcast with him last night. He says, the biggest blessing to me in my life is that I experienced enough success to sort of know what it took to continue uh, working, but never that one success uh, after which I would be called upon to repeat it. And I couldn't do anything but that. I thought that was really interesting, but in, in Axel Rose, the success turned him into a paranoid control freak. St. Paul talked about Axel Rose, of course, when he was writing for sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. I mean, in this case, it really did put him to death. There was 14 years of silence, as it were. There were uh, now 23 years without anything happening. Um, this kind of uh, judgment, this inescapable force of, uh, uh, of self-justification through the law, I mean, it's, it's summarized in the cross in a, in, a, in a certain sense. The cross is uh, judgment at its most visceral and inescapable that the cycle of recrimination and uh, proving is, is what actually ends up killing God himself. Now that may be too highfalutin uh, to go from appetite for destruction to uh, killing God, but um, that's where my mind goes. And if you haven't listened to Chinese democracy, it, it is the death rattle of, of, of a human being. I mean, it's, it's, it deals with nothing but self-justification and blame and scapegoating. It's, it is a document, a beautiful document of scapegoating. Now, I talk about this because one of the books we've gotten to read uh, recently um, is a wonderful little book that's out on the book table by David Dark called Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. He says that to call yourself uh, religious is like calling yourself cultural. You can't... It's futile. You are cultural. Get used to it, you know. Or you are, you know, it's how people say, hey, you know, hey, I'm apolitical. It's like, well, that's, unfortunately, that's the way of being political, right? Um, so when people use the word religion, oftentimes they mean a set of creeds or confessions. And, and you know, let's keep religion out of the public sphere. They usually sort of, that's a, religion becomes a euphemism for the way that intellectually underdeveloped people get carried away. But that's always so naive. And one of our central convictions here at Mockingbird is that um, everyone's religious. 
dark defines religion as simply what is the controlling story of your life? It is the question of how you dispose of your energy. And whatever image or parable uh, wins your heart, what we just talked about, is it's the one that makes it past your defenses. That's the story that will often uh, at first seem like a relief and then become a new taskmaster. Religion happens, he writes, when we get pulled in, moved, called out, or compelled by something outside of ourselves. It could be a car commercial, a lyric, a painting, a theatrical performance, but calls to worship are everywhere. So in this sense, we're never not involved in worship. It's not something, religion isn't something we can really be for or against. It's like saying, I'm for or against oxygen. It just is. Uh, And, you know, it just sort of depends what kind of religion you're swimming in. What kind of myths have you ascribed to? Are you under the gun, uh, pun intended, of uh, sort of a um, Pelagian, you know, uh, fundamentalism? Or is it uh, commercial uh, slavery that is driving you? I don't know what it is. What's the controlling story? Um, Which is all another way of saying that none of us can walk without crutches. One of the great, beautiful things about this picture up here. Do you see what is holding Axel Rose up? That man's on crutches, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, I think it's very poetic. But in fact, he just broke his foot. He's been performing these initial gigs from sitting on a throne. I mean, there's so much symbol stealing going on. It's, uh, it's incredible. It's clearly a work of God. The, but we need crutches. A religion, you know, you know what, does, what did Jesse Ventura say? What religion is a crutch for weak-minded people, right? And you've heard that reiterated from Richard Dawkins and so-and-so and, you know, whomever. But when, when you know, our answer to that is always... Of course it's a crutch. I mean, but I, it's more than a crutch. It's like a whole life support system. I, who doesn't want to? A crutch sounds great. I'm tired. I don't want to walk around. I want to sit on the couch and watch movies. Uh, with crutches. <laughs> but not movies about people with crutches, because those are exhausting. <laughs> Sorry. That was just... I'm, I'm, I'm trying to integrate with what Brian was saying. Um... So we, we need, you, you can, some people are capital R religious, but everyone is lowercase r religious. And it's sort of a, the question is not what, you know, if you have a crutch, it's what your crutch is. You can't walk without them. Um, so you answer the question first of if it's true, but then you answer, does this crutch actually work? It, does it relieve you? Or is it making it harder to walk? Is it causing you to uh, degenerate, to fall on your face? In other words, can your crutch survive the force that is coming at you? Can it survive a shipwreck? Kenda Dean, in her book, Almost, um, Almost Religious, I think it's called, she writes that uh, she's sort of critiquing what passes for religion cap- with a capital R in this country. Uh, She says that if religion exists for the purpose of feeling good and doing nice things, then experiences of shipwreck render it irrelevant. 
Religion does not help an abuse victim feel good, nor does it help her be nice about her abuser. In times of shipwreck, feeling good about ourselves or being nice are unthinkable. And if this is all religion is for, then shipwreck naturally convinces us that God is either make-believe or impotent. This is what happens when capital R religion is, is the centrality of the forgiveness of sins is taken away and it becomes a, a mode of behavior modification, behavior being niceness, being happiness. Now, I thought it would, before we close, every year I like to sort of go through a few of the operating religions in our lives, a few that have sort of poked their heads up this year, things that we've noticed on the website, and I'm going to steal shamelessly from uh, my co-contributors here. Last year we talked really about the cult of productivity and how everything, especially in America, is uh, premised on the idea of productivity. If, it's an, if, you're not, if, it, if it doesn't yield a measurable result in your life, it's not worth doing. And that applies to even sleep and play. That's, how you, that's the only ways you can market these things to Americans. Uh, this year I thought we could shift gears a little bit since we had Eric Kleinenberg here yesterday. And one of the things that he surfaced was the religion of romance which has been sold to us under the guise of that, that word soulmate, right? What is, what is a soulmate? It's what he, people talk about it as younger generation. I don't think it's a younger generation thing. I think everyone wants a soulmate. It's a great idea, right? Um, but it's, again, it's symbol switching. Uh, but it's the idea that there's this, pre- there's this pressure to find the perfect person and given the enormous variety of jam we could buy, we're going to not buy any of it because if we pick one out, then we're leaving all the others there and they might taste better. And that funny stuff about jam that we talked about. And that's the thing about the internet though. That's what, what unfortunately, and this is some, we've tried to explore this in our technology issue ad nauseum. In fact, Ethan and I keep talking about how we just never want to talk about technology ever again. Um, but we can't get away from it. The internet doesn't simply help us find the best thing out there. This is Kleinenberg writing. It's helped produce the idea that there is a best thing. And if we search hard enough, we can find it. Now, that's a religion. That's, that's this controlling story. That if I just find this perfect thing that's out there, well, then I will be saved. Um, and this is one of the reasons why um, the psychotherapist Esther Perel, who, who is uh, Israeli, uh, specializing in um, infidelity, she talks about having counseled hundreds of couples who are having trouble in their marriages. And she, uh, she, what she sees is that people are asking far too much of marriage. Our overly optimistic view of ourselves has translated into our high anthropology has so infected our understanding of romance that we're making ourselves completely miserable. She talks about it in this way. She says, marriage was an economic institution in which you were given a partnership for life in terms of children and social status and succession and companionship. But now we want our partner to still give us all these things, but in addition... I want you to be my best friend, my trusted confidant, my passionate lover, and we live twice as long. (laughs) So we come to one person, and we are basically asking them to give us what an entire village used to provide. Give me belonging. Give me identity. Give me continuity. 
but give me transcendence and mystery and awe and excitement all in one. Give me comfort, but give me edge. Give me novelty, but also familiarity. Give me predictability, but give me surprise. If you sub out entire village in the middle of that paragraph for God, then the direction of contemporary worship becomes very plain. This is an extremely religious definition of marriage that people are dealing with, which is so funny because we're trying to, you know, take, separate religion and marriage and, you know, the Supreme Court and all that stuff. What, you've, what, what we're trying to make room for is the most religious understanding of marriage that the human race has ever seen because we're trying to marry our Savior, someone who we can worship. And there is no more crushing law than thou shalt complete me. Oh, you know, sayonara. This is salvation. And there's no more reliable predictor of discontent or confusion either than uh, when your conception of love is so thoroughly bound up in self-fulfillment rather than, say, self-sacrifice or self-divestment. You know, the law of love, it's one of the saddest, cruelest uh, subversions that we deal with. What I'm talking about is a situation where entitlement, which is another word for high anthropology, has turned what is a blessing to live your life with another person to become one flesh. You turn it into an expectation. You take love and you turn it into law. The result is anxiety and paralysis. And of course, pursuing love in such a highly pressurized way seems to preclude it being found. I mean, at least the kind of love that can handle shortcoming and sin and shipwreck. Shortcoming, sin, and shipwreck being a euphemism for another human being. Of course, we know, and um, though we need to hear it again and again and again and again and again, the Bible paints a different picture. It assumes from the outset that we are all severely handicapped in our ability to love one another. And that we stand a better chance of loving our neighbor or our spouse when we aren't looking to them to be or do for us what, what they could never do or be outside of God. So that's one of our religions, and I think it's a particularly pressing one. Um, that Kleinenberg maybe didn't know that that's why I'd invited him here. <laughs> But I was interested in finding out the, the, what's the state of American worship like. And I thought he gave us a pretty pithy but also deeply upsetting picture of it. The second one that I'm just going to talk about today, and there's many more, it, the controlling story is, guess what? Story. A little meta here. Narrative. Self-authorship. I'm going to tell you my story. I need the right to tell my story. As Monica Lewinsky says, i got to take my narrative back. I mean, poor girl, I feel for her. But there's no taking that narrative back. It's, I'm sorry. It's, it's out there. This is the internet never forgets. Um, this sounds good to us. I want to be in control of my life story, and it's up to me to tell you my story. But it's... Um, it's based in an illusion. 
about ourselves and our lives. We, you know, the assigning of a story arc to our lives simply does not jive with the reality of those lives. And encouraging people to do so can be drastically more harmful than helpful. For the first reason is because we have to create an upward trajectory. You have to create a story of yourself that has some kind of redemptive quality, or you have to create one that it coheres in a negative direction, like a story of self-loathing, self-defeat. You get trapped by these stories. Stories become law, and they become law because they assume that you are a, 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 a single person doing a single thing, and that this is what's true for you. You have to live under it. So we get trapped in the glory story, do we not? I was so struck by, um, and Sarah Condon helped me with this because I'd, I hadn't seen it before, but I want to see it now. Is Vanderpump Rules? Have you guys seen Vanderpump Rules? It's a reality TV show about a um, restaurant in Los Angeles called, uh, it's from the Housewives franchise of Bravo. It's that, that font of uh, Western virtue. It's, uh, it's called Vanderpump Rules, and it's about a, a, a restaurant called special, unique restaurant or something like that. Is SUR, S-U-R. What does it stand for? Sexy, uh, unique restaurant. I'm pretty sure it's sexy, unique restaurant. So you know immediately that we're dealing with some profits. Um, and I don't, I'd actually not being patronizing because what the show reveals is actually something that's very countercultural and true. Um, there was a, a New York Times, uh, Naomi Fry wrote an article. She's an Israeli who'd come to the States. And she decided she loved watching the show because unlike every other reality TV show on American television, it doesn't have any upward trajectory. <laughs> but it, that doesn't mean it's defeatist. It's not, it's not like people just, it's not, you're just not watching, you're not wallowing in pain and misery. What she says is that, um, this is her writing, instead of, uh, it doesn't, it's somehow an alternative to um, our compulsive addiction to uh, ladder climbing. Um, she says, American reality television has a near pathological focus on success. It makes no difference whether a show documents an actual competition or a milestone refigured as a competition, The Bachelor, or offers some version, however far-fetched, of everyday life, like keeping up with the Kardashians. The trajectory is always the same, endlessly upward. In the personal growth-obsessed universe of reality TV, Vanderpump stands apart. The restaurant staff members with their stardom-primed appearances, their snuggly-sheathed, gene-toned bodies and smooth Botox-injected brows have been locked in a state of readiness that has yet to lead to ascent. I moved to America more than a decade ago from Israel and found myself half seduced, half flummoxed by the very American fixation on growth and improvement. It's not, you guess what, Israel. <laughs> They've got a view of, uh, trust me, of, of uh, history as uh, being an upward trajectory. Um, despite what, anyway. Um, <clears throat> this is a human thing, not an American thing. Seduced because it seems like the law of the land is to side with the winners, no matter the circumstances or costs. This is what, this is exactly what Dr. Peters was talking about. Flummoxed because there appeared to be something unsustainable, maybe even fascistic, or fascist, in this unswerving focus on worldly achievement, religion. Thinking of stasis, 
as one possibility among others, even if just for a limited period of time, even in just the sense of loosening the hectoring voice in your own head that urges you to always keep marching forward, well, that seems like a culturally viable, emotionally necessary option. But it contradicts the law of the, sto- the law of the story, the religion of the story, the narrative forming, self-authorship, if you will. This injunction that we all feel to craft a coherent story out of our lives is it, the sub-law is to craft a coherent self. Derek Webb last night was talking about himself being different people. And that this is an illusion that's made very possible. It's aided and abetted by social media in which we get to edit ourselves, curate what people see. We get to foster this illusion that we're just one person and not several. And of course, what is the temptation to edit yourself except for in in, in the service of self-justification? Mary Carr, our uh, friend and hero, the Catholic poet and memoirist. No one knows more about this than she does. She's, she, she's a memoirist, and she, she edits manuscripts for, she teaches about memoir. And this is what she says about the human self, and I think it's something that uh, is inconvertibly true, and yet is suppressed because it, it, is, it, it doesn't serve these religions. She says, no matter how much you're gunning for truth, the human ego is a stealthy, low-crawling bastard. And for pretty much everybody, getting used to who you are is a lifelong spiritual struggle. Start trying to bring yourself to the page, and fear of how you'll come off besets even the most forthright. She goes a step deeper. She writes that we each nurture a private terror that some core aspect of ourselves or our story must be hidden or disowned. With every manuscript I've ever edited, even grown-assed writers, the traits a writer often fights hardest to hide may serve as undeniable facets of both self and story. You bumble onto a scene that blows up fond notions of the past, and whole shifts in attitude practically rewrite you where you stand. We try to boil ourselves down to one self And that self is, of course, the acceptable self, the lovable self, the provable self. This is what the psychologist Eric Erickson meant when he says that actually various selves make up our composite self. And that there are constant and often shock-like transition between these selves. It takes a healthy personality for the I to be able to speak out of all these conditions in such a way that at any moment it can testify to a reasonably coherent self. But... Don't glaze over because you love appetite for destruction as much as I do. And Axel Rose is not a coherent person. And that's why we love him. Or at least that's why I love him. Listen to those lyrics. There's no coherent self. It's biting and poetic. It's not dumb. But it is, it, it, and it's slightly intellectual in fact. But you go from unbelievable rage one minute in Out to Get Me followed by sweetness in Think About You. The attitudes towards women are schizophrenic, to say the least, ranging from unlistenable misogyny in My Michelle to worshipful adoration in Sweet Child of Mine, oftentimes in the same song, which is Rocket Queen. Images of Axel as a vulnerable child praying for thunder and rain to pass him by are juxtaposed with a grown man praying on the vulnerable newcomer in his city and welcome to the jungle. 
Okay? So why we love uh, is not just the beautifully interlocking guitars and screechy vocals. Uh, This is a human being being brought to the page. And he's experiencing some kind of freedom from the oppressive past that has allowed him to sort of let it all hang out. Unfortunately, it was so successful that it made sure that he never let it all hang out again. Don't mistake me, because God does tell a story. But we confuse God's narrative of redemption with our own spasmodic part in it. Partially or totally because it allows us the illusion of control, of self-deification. Ethan wrote something wonderful about this, about deconstructing the story of your life. Um, He talks about Luther's insight about subcontrario, that God works under the opposite. He says that uh, God always tells the story, not us. He frequently does so by deconstructing our story, which is a glory story, and building from there. Last night, Derek Webb, if you hadn't noticed, is going through a bit of a dark night of the soul. And um, we interviewed him. I I say this because it's going to be on the public podcast. Um, But he describes the past two years of his life where he's come uh, up against some very unpleasant truths about himself as being um, he says in life there's lots of periods of deconstruction and reconstruction right now I'm waiting for the reconstruction and I said that should be the title of your next record but it sounds a little like REM but um, and he wants it to be a loud record not a jangly one Um, God tells our story, but he does so by deconstructing the one we form for ourselves, which is that glory story, which is that upward trajectory. God shows himself in showing you what you are not and what can never be. And in doing so, the own mercurial story of our coherent inner lives is stripped away. And what is left is the story of Calvary, which is the story of death and resurrection. And that is the only story that matters. I believe that this is what Dr. Peters meant, or at least part of it, when he says that God, because God justifies us, we do not have to. We no longer need to defend ourselves, make ourselves look good, or fool ourselves into believing that we are, in fact, what we want others to think of us. Isn't that what we're doing with our stories with our choice of romantic partners. Now, I say this and it immediately becomes a a new law, right? What we heard last night. Well, now I have to reconceive of this and really think of it in a new way and consistently and I better not forget it. No. No. Uh, God's in charge. It's, It's, that's the whole point. I saw, we saw a powerful example of what it looks like to have your story told by someone else and the relief and uh, beauty of that. This past week, or two weeks ago, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, many of you have been keeping up with this in the news, I know. Uh, he's this inc- amazing man. And um, you may know about his, his backstory, and they lost a baby daughter in a tragic car accident. And he's, this guy's lived... But at the age of 60, it was discovered via a DNA test that his parentage is different than what he'd always assumed. 
And the telegraph put him up to this, I guess. Um, I wonder why he agreed. Maybe it was like get good publicity for the church. I, I talked to someone who says he never turns down an opportunity to sort of be interviewed, which I think is great. He turned down our interview. Um, <clears throat> um, it turns out that his father was not Gavin Welby who was a first-generation Jewish immigrant to the UK, who was described by the Telegraph and pretty much everyone as a quote-unquote alcoholic trickster, like a Reignard. He, uh, he sounds a con man, essentially. Um, a bit of a, um, of, a, of, a, of a scoundrel. But that wasn't, that's not his father. His father is actually Anthony Montag Brown, who served as Winston Churchill's final private secretary. In other words, instead of the legitimate son of a, quote, whiskey salesman, he's the illegitimate son of a double-barreled English aristocrat. There are pluses and minuses to both here. <laughs> but this is like some ground shifting underneath your feet when you're 60 years old. Um, I hope that I find out something different about my parentage one day. Just kidding, just kidding. A grateful son. Um, but this is how Welby responded. And this is what I think um, it, is, what, is, the, is, what, is what we call the engine house that might fuel what, the hope that Ethan described as the not they will know we are Christians by our love, which would be great, but they will be know we are Christians by how quick we are to say we're wrong. Um, because things aren't at stake. Our self-justification isn't at stake. Welby's response was extraordinary for its unabashed acceptance of uh, his, um, this news. And his insist, but more than that, his insistence that this news could not define him. He says, although there are elements of sadness and even tragedy in my father's case, this is also a story of redemption and hope from a place of tumultuous difficulty and near despair in several lives. The affair that birthed him was born in a, 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 a part of an alcoholic sort of bender on behalf of two aristocrats in the suppressed 50s. Uh, and, but in fact, was the beginning of a, I think his mother's been sober for 40, 40 years. She's a baroness. And it's this incredible story of this, it's brought them closer together. It, it, she's been interviewed too. Um, <clears throat> but this is what he says that you can't make up. He says, I know that I find who I am in Jesus Christ. Not in genetics. And my identity in him never changes. That story's been written. And we know how it turns out. And it's a good one. So we can enjoy the one that's being written with all of its schizophrenia. Or we can lament the downturns knowing that they are not the ultimate word on our lives we can feel those things we can mourn them but we can experience Christianity as relief in fact writing about Welby in the Guardian which is usually a much more skeptical paper Archie Bland said <clears throat> that Welby, like Pope Francis, sort of at the 
last possible moment or even beyond the time when uh, Christianity is seen as at all credible in certain circles. He praised these two men and saying that they know that they need to do more than show that Christianity is not a magisterial rule book designed to tell you why you're a monster. There, you know, a lot of us are in the business of saying, well, Christianity is not a bunch of rules. But we know what, what it's not. What is it? Archie Bland says they know that they, they need to do more than that. They need to show, and they do, are showing, that Christianity is instead a merciful companion in life's hardest times. And this could hardly be more powerfully presented than in Welby's testimony. Our Christian hope is a relief because it lies not in having to generate love or identity or story on our own steam, but in prior belovedness, the declarative statement that Sasha referenced yesterday. This declaration, which is expressed in sacrificial terms and in spite of our undeserving, this kind of love, which is by definition divine, the love that seeks out the unlovable and finds before it is found, love that satisfies rather than introduces expectations. Now I know that might sound a little pious, but I believe it is deeply relieving, and that's why we call it hope. In light of the infidelity diagnosis that Kleinenberg and Dr. Perel gave us, perhaps we might walk away from this conference hearing that the law not only commands that we love perfectly, but it commands that we be perfectly loved. The gospel announces that we already are. The image of Axel Rose singing from a place of seated, seated on the stump up there on the stage, holding his crutches, uh, his schizophrenic songs going forth into the world to um, lower people's defenses and connect them with their inner child, or inner adolescent, actually. It's a beautiful picture. Take that with you. But I'm going to close with a different song. It's a song, uh, it's, I'm going to read it to you. It's by Tom Waits. And I owe um, both uh, Sam Bush and Derek Kensrew for turning me on to it. It's called uh, Down There by the Train. This is how it goes. <clears throat> Written in 1996. There's a place I know where the train goes slow, where the sinners can be washed in the blood of the Lamb. There's a river by the trestle down by Sinner's Grove, down where the willow and the dogwood grows down there where the train goes slow. You can hear the whistle, you can hear the bell, from the halls of heaven to the gates of hell. There's room for the forsaken if you're there on time. You'll be washed of all your sins and of all your crimes, down there where the train goes slow. There's a golden moon that shines up through the mist. I know that your name will be on that list. There's no eye for an eye. There's no tooth for a tooth. I saw Judas Iscariot carrying John Wilkes Booth.
down there where the train goes slow. If you've lost all your hope, if you've lost all your faith, I know you will be cared for. I know you will be safe. All the shameful and all of the whores, even the soldier who pierced the heart of the Lord, down there where the train goes slow. Well, I've never asked forgiveness, and I've never said a prayer. I've never given of myself, and I've never truly cared. I've hurt the ones who love me. I'm still raising Cain. I've taken the low road. And if you've done the same, meet me down there where the train goes slow. Now, we all know where that train's going. A place where the grass is green and the girls are pretty. (laughs) You fill in the blank. Thanks for listening. Sam Bush, not here. Oh. And uh, if you have your program still, get it out. You sing a song, we're going to say a prayer, then we're going to go on our way. I'm taking a train, actually. Um, uh, and I just want to say thank you again to everyone. If you don't have your program, maybe you can share with someone who does still have one.